0: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your
0: Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Let's head into the vault. This week, it is part two of our series on the Kuleshov effect. This episode originally aired January 27th, 2022. Hope you enjoy.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on the Kuleshov Effect. Now, as I explained last time, this is one that uh, originally was going to be one episode. We ended up splitting it in two, so uh, we're doing a little time traveling right now. This is an out-of-sequence introduction, but I guess from here we'll just uh, jump right back into the middle of our conversation from last time. Let's do it. Well, anyway, so I I wanted to talk about a very interesting paper that uh, analyzed the, the history and meaning of the Kuleshov effect and then also tried to recreate the Mojukan experiment. Uh, so this paper was published in the Cinema Journal by uh, Stephen Prince and Wayne E. Hensley called The Kuleshov Effect Recreating the Classic Experiment, the year 1992. Uh, I think both of the authors on this paper were, uh, at the time, professors at Virginia Tech, Stephen Prince is a uh, is, is a film scholar who I know has done a lot of work on Akira Kurosawa. Mm. And I'm not going to cover the entire paper, but I just want to note uh, some parts of it that struck me as, as relevant and interesting. So they start off by telling the story – of the Kuleshov effect experiment, the, the experiment with that actor Mojookin, making the neutral face and then either being intercut with with soup or with uh, the woman in the coffin. And and the audience is raving about how, how expressive and powerful the emotions in the performance were. Uh, now, one thing they do at the beginning is they note some differences in the details of the story that arise from different recountings of it. And so they end up casting doubt on whether the accounts of this experiment are, first of all, historically accurate, and second, analytically valid. And so the authors write, quote, The goal here is to provide a clearer contextualization of Kuleshov's work, distinguishing between its incontrovertible importance for an understanding of how cinema communicates and certain of its limitations, especially its incautious merging of theoretical claim and observational assertion. As we will see, Kuleshov may have been right, but perhaps for the wrong reasons. So the top line of this paper is that they try to recreate the uh, Majukin experiment as it is usually described, and they do not produce the same result. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this doesn't necessarily mean that the broader implications of the Kuleshov effect are wrong, theoretically. Uh, but it might mean something about the specific claims about a neutral face. Um so they start off talking about Kuleshov's belief in the power of montage and his arguments that editing is far more important to the meaning generated by a film than the contents of the shots. So they talk about the Madzoukin experiment and then the other things we mentioned, creative geography and creative anatomy. And they describe the general takeaway from the uh, Madzoukin experiment as follows, quote, naturalistic, emotive performances by actors were not considered by Kuleshov to be essential to cinema. Because of the demands of montage, actors were to provide minimal, restrained, and fairly unambiguous gestural and facial expressions. As Kuleshov puts it, quote, the presence of montage necessitated that the shots should be constructed simply, clearly, distinctly, Otherwise, the flickering of a rapid montage would not be sufficient for a full scrutiny of its contents. Uh, And then the authors go on. Reacting partly against the over-emoting found in some silent films, Kuleshov noted that, quote, "...a preoccupation with psychologism rooted in the actor's performance was quite useless for the cinema." So in a, in a lot of ways, it sounds like Kuleshov kind of wanted to take the acting out of acting. He was like, Mm. there's too much psychology in acting. What we need instead is just sort of like shots of actors doing kind of like plain, unambiguous moments that can then be selected by the editor to insert in a sequence to make meaning of.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me of so many other discussions we've had about performance and direction, uh, I'm always reminded of that, uh, that that final sequence from Aguirre, The Wrath of God, mm-hmm. uh, where you have um, you, you have what ends up being a rather balanced uh, and, and, and and interesting performance by Kinski but apparently it's because Werner Herzog just wore him out, uh, made him do take after take until he wasn't doing like a frenzied. Um, uh, you know, uh, over almost you know overacting, overly intense uh, performance. Uh, mm-hmm. He's not raging; he's just actually you know, you know uh, emoting it at the level that the director wants, and then can therefore be uh, be used effectively in the edit.
0: Yeah, and though if that story is true, it may have worked in this case. I, I, I want to say I, I do
1: not necessarily endorse directing by exhaustion. <laughs> no, no, no. Now well, that was a special relationship, obviously. Yeah. But you often see this brought up, and you know, there's this idea of like, is this, is it the, is is this about the actor and the acting performance? Is mm-hmm. it about uh, editing? Is it about uh, the director's vision? And you do mm-hmm. see, often see that sort of push and pull, be it you know, Klaus Kinski and Werner Herzog, or Jimmy Stewart and Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, you know, the, the actor has a certain vision about how things want, need to be, and then the director ha- maybe has another idea, uh, not, not only about, like, this particular character in this particular performance, but how it fits into the, the overall film, how it fits into the final edit. And so you could um, you could imagine somebody going into it with this, this sort of very uh, Kuleshov idea of just shoot, just, all we need are just neutral actors. We don't really need any, any of this emotion one way or another. And um, I don't know, there are probably some examples of filmmakers who tend to to lean in that direction uh, with, with very neutral uh, performances. Yeah, you could almost look at that approach as uh, something that might
0: be more common, say, in like music videos and stuff mm-hmm. than in narrative films. But you can probably find it some in, in narrative films as well, where the filming part of the filmmaking process is just sort of like creating a bunch of building blocks that can later be used in various arrangements to do whatever the director or editor later decides to do with them.
1: Yeah. It also reminds me how, uh, you know, a lot of the films we watch in Weird House Cinema will sometimes feature um, uh, non-actors. Uh, or you know, very very green actors, but the the right sort of non actor can really excel in a scene if utilized correctly. You know, like not the kind of non actor where they're just really outrageous with, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, but where they're just sort of very, you know, they're very neutral. They're they're almost barely there at all. And yeah. if uh, enough of the other stuff is in the right place, it can really work.
0: Now I got to say though, as this paper ends up describing Kulishov's theory of of film and montage, I I think I can't agree with with what it sounds like Kuleshov's vision actually was because Kuleshov apparently said things like the film shot is not a still photograph. The shot is a sign, a letter for montage. Uh, so he, I think he's saying like a, a still photograph can have meaning on its own, but a shot in a movie is more like a letter in a sentence, something which does not have meaning on its own, but is combined in sequence to make meaning. Clearly, that has some truth to it because, as we've said, editing does constitute a major part of the the sense making or meaning making of a film. But I think that's also pretty overstated. Uh, you know, a lot of meaning lies in the editing, but the contents of the shots also stand alone to a greater extent and and matter a lot more than Kuleshov was giving credit here. Um, though, again, to be fair, I think it's important for us not to forget that in the nineteen teens and early nineteen twenties. You know, uh, film was still fairly young, editing was still fairly new in cinema, and its powers were still being discovered. Uh, you know, it's a, like, like we talked about, the very earliest films from the 1890s and such were usually not edited at all. They'd just be one continuous shot. And even after editing was introduced, films of the silent era typically did not have as many cuts as movies were used to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, furthermore, the authors of, of this 92 paper argue that a, a theory comparing film to language is actually not super useful because there's just a lot of ways in which that doesn't work. Like film does things language cannot do. So you don't have to learn a language to appreciate the meanings of films. You you learn some conventions, but you know you can just watch a movie and make some sense of it, even if you're not familiar with conventions. As you, To understand a language, you have to learn the language. Um, Meanwhile, uh, language does things that film can't do, like photographic images used in a film cannot be recombined freely to make endless meaning the way a language can. Right. There's also an interesting digression in this paper about Kuleshov being influenced by the ideology of industrial efficiency on the model of the American engineer Frederick Taylor, who uh, was a big proponent of finding ways to make, you know, production processes and factories more efficient, finding all the places where, where waste and 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 problems creep in and eliminating those. And that uh, Taylor's uh, ideas of industrial efficiency were apparently very popular in the Soviet Union at the time. And that in a way, the authors say that you could view Kuleshov's emphasis on economy and acting as a type of industrial efficiency technique applied to film theory.
1: Yeah, I mean, but based on what I was reading, it, it does it does seem like a lot of his work was based in let's figure out what's working, and then how we can we can do that. How how do we make how, how do what is the most economic means of making yeah. effective film?
0: Now, ultimately, Prince and Hensley make the case that Kuleshov really was trying to dress up his theoretical convictions about how film works uh, with the imprimatur of empirical science with this alleged experiment, the Majukin experiment. Uh, and I, I think I'm pretty convinced by their description of it that way. I, th- I think this is something you've always got to be cautious of because obviously, you know, I don't object in principle to exploring or building upon artistic theories with empirical methods. But I would also say my personal opinion is that a lot of these efforts to inject scientific methods into aesthetics and and art and stuff can be confusing and unnecessary. Like, I don't think you have to have an empirical scientific justification for an opinion about where meaning comes from in art or in film. Obviously I'm a huge believer in empirical science. I just don't think it it has to pervade every domain. Like aesthetics and art don't necessarily need scientific evidence and theories behind them. Those fields just, you know, work by different standards and I think also a lot of times if you try to generate empirical scientific justifications for your beliefs about art or aesthetics or whatever, you're often just going to end up doing sloppy experiments or drawing unjustified conclusions, even if you do a good one.
1: Yeah. Um, Like I'm reminded, you know, of the fact that obviously you have a such thing, there's such a thing as outsider art and outsider cinema um, and, and examples of outsider art and outsider cinema can be amazing. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, on the other side of things, you don't hear as much about maybe outsider um, architecture, outsider uh, <laughs> structural engineering, <Yeah. laughs> things of this nature. Outs- uh, outsider medicine is probably uh, you know best uh, avoided if you can, no matter how yeah. it's being dressed up.
0: Well, I mean, I think empirical methods are good for fields in which you are trying to achieve very clearly specified goals, certain kinds of outcomes, and get them as reliably as possible. And empirical methods are, are less important in Fields where you're you're just trying to be expressive or be creative and see what kind of emergent results come out.
1: But if it's like like this, turns my mind to uh, like A/B testing and focus groups. Yeah, used in film and television, Um, you know, not not necessarily a bad idea at all. Especially when you're dealing again with a very mainstream product, you want to appeal to you know a a wide population of individuals. Um, But you know, there are plenty of arguments to be made about it as a potential uh, you know sloppy experiment, as you say. Uh, Perhaps one of the best uh, critiques of all of this is that uh, that episode of The Simpsons, the Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie Show,
0: (laughs) one of my favorites. (laughs)
1: It's just an old creaky mirror.
0: Sometimes it sounds like it's uh, coughing or talking softly. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. But anyway, to come back to uh, uh, Prince and Henley's description of methodological problems with the the common descriptions of Kuleshov's alleged experiment, the Mazyukin experiment, with the neutral face and the soup and the, and the coffin and stuff. And they list a bunch of questions. They say, quote, for such a seminal and basically uncontested study, there is virtually no information available about Kuleshov's actual method and procedure. Did he, for example, interview the subjects individually or in a group? What did he tell them beforehand about the purpose of the presentation? What, if anything, did he tell them about the nature of film editing or montage? What was the frequency of outlier opinions, e.g. people who did not think Majukin uh, was saddened by the dead woman? Published accounts suggest the responses were uniform. Was this so? Unfortunately, we do not know the answers to any of these questions. So, given these limitations, they attempt to recreate and try to replicate as best they can the conditions of the original experiment to see if they get the same result. So what they did was they put together a videotape. Uh, they, they had some auditions for actors to produce a, a close-up shot of a face that was just uh, totally neutral and expressionless. And they had to go through a couple of rounds because in the first round, the actor's neutral face was not perceived as neutral enough by the control group. Um, but so, uh, so they, they got a neutral face on a video and they did the same thing. They intercut it with a woman lying in a coffin, uh, a girl playing with a teddy bear, and a bowl of soup on a table. And they tried as best they could to follow Kuleshov's cues about what, uh, what the cinematography techniques for making this work the best would be. So it would be uh, uh, people visible on a darkened black velvet background... Apparently, the actors were told that they just needed someone to uh, to model for an instructional video in which they would be required to do an expressionless or neutral face. So one difference is that instead of one long sequence intercutting with all of them, they did separate sequences for each reaction. So, uh, for example, it might go face, soup, face, fade out, or face, coffin, face, fade out, and each shot was seven seconds long. And the separate sequences make sense to me because you might get a different reaction with some pairings than you would with others. So, viewers each saw one sequence selected at random, and they were told that the experimenters needed help evaluating an acting performance. And then the viewers were supposed to select from a list of emotions that they thought were being portrayed by the actor. Options included happiness, sadness, anger, fear, surprise, disgust, hunger, no emotion, and other. Uh, apparently, the participants were undergrads at a mid-Atlantic university, I'm going to assume, based on the uh, the author's affiliations. This was probably Virginia Tech. Uh, they said that, interestingly, film students were excluded from the experiment since they might detect the connection mm-hmm. to Kuleshov and understand what the experiment was getting at, which could bias results. And in support of this decision... I mean, it seems like a good choice either way, but to justify this decision, they wrote about another recent attempt to replicate the the Majoukin experiment in France among film students who allegedly gave answers like the following, quote, We know that the man does not change his expression, but because of the montage, we think we see him change, or, quote, we know the Kuleshov effect, and it works. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Prince and Hensley also had a control condition where they showed the face to uh, 24 film students this time, but without any inner cutting. They, they were just uh, showing them the face by itself and asking them what emotion it was showing. Uh, for the, the face that they actually used in the experiment, 88% said there was no emotion on the face. So this is a very good neutral face.
1: You know that that reminds me, though, of of use of neutral face, uh, sort of not still pictures, but just um, scene sequences where um, a character or an individual is staring directly into the camera. Um, I'm thinking uh, it's, uh, certainly about. Um, uh, Ron Frick's 1992 film Baraka, which features a number of mm-hmm. these uh, sequences where you'll, you'll just have an individual from, a, from one culture or another just staring into the camera. Mm-hmm. Or another example that comes to mind is uh, the 1986 film The Mission, where at the very end of the film, there is a, you, you just have several beats of one of the, the primary characters. Uh, staring into the camera a you know, very neutral expression. And of course you, you have the entire film you've just watched to uh, help uh, inform your idea of what's going through that, that character's head. Um, but, uh, but, but still it's, it's a, it's a great use of neutral expression. Like he doesn't, it doesn't look particularly sad in that case. Uh, but you, in uh, you can see sadness in the character, you know?
0: Well, yeah, that's a good example, but I think it also does raise questions about something that's supposed to be sort of outside the uh, the standard interpretation of this, uh, of this experiment, which is like, well, wait, what are the actual contents of the face? Maybe that does matter. Mm. Uh, that's going to come up in the author's interpretation of the results they get. But so in the actual experiment they did, they, they had 137 participants, including the control group uh, in the experimental group. In every condition, uh, whether it was soup, coffin, or child, the majority of people said there was no emotion. So they saw the face that was supposedly neutral. They saw it intercut with whatever it was, the soup or the coffin, and they said, nope, there is no emotion on this face. Mm. In the soup condition, 68% selected no emotion. In uh, both the child and the coffin condition, 61% said no emotion. And so comparing that to c- the control group, uh, in the control, 88% said there was no emotion, and that dropped down to 68 in the soup and 61 in the child in the coffin. So you could say this is a small increase in perceived emotion, though the authors note that for the size of the group they tested, it actually doesn't reach statistical significance, so it might just be a random fluke. Furthermore, in the cases where the viewers picked an emotion, It was usually not the expected emotion, so it was not happiness for the child and so forth. So either way, this experiment finds something somewhere between no effect and small effect on perceived emotion, which is a very far cry either way from Kuleshov's reports about the audience's unanimous raving about the actor's subtle emotional performances – So the authors say here that, you know, unless contrary evidence emerges, it seems true to say that, quote, the Kuleshov effect, as reported, no longer exists, even if the effect did play a role at one time. Though emphasis there should be on as reported, because some of the broader implications of it probably do still hold true. Now, this raises an interesting question. If we assume for the sake of argument that Kuleshov was basically reporting the results of his experiment accurately or with only slight exaggeration, what could account between the difference? Why did Kuleshov get people raving about the subtle emotion in the neutral face, but that didn't really happen in a modern experiment? The authors offer some ideas here, and I think they're all pretty possible, viable, and, and certainly interesting. So one would be, changes in audience expectation. You know, audiences today are accustomed to highly effective editing techniques that have been perfected over time, such as, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the preservation of eye lines to enforce continuity of of perspective and reverse shots.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think this is is a big one. And I mean, it comes down to like some of the basics of what we said earlier about how, at, at least for many of us, and certainly for me, like trying to watch an actual Kuleshov film is is very difficult. Like it's just film has come so has, has evolved so much since then, mm-hmm. um, and, and and the effects are are subtle in a way that uh, you, you really the film only has to be even halfway competent to really just draw right. you in and create the illusion.
0: Right so uh, so the author's right quote it may be that a modern audience by virtue of increased media exposure relative to Kuleshov's day has become accustomed to a more systematic and complex set of associational cues such as those supplied by the continuity system of editing and is correspondingly less likely to respond to a montage sequence that employs a blank face and minimal, if any associative cues within shots. So maybe the bar for uh, perceiving emotion in films has, has gone up, you know, it's Mm -hmm. just harder to do now. And at the time that the Kuleshov did his experiment, allegedly, Maybe the audiences were just were just more. Uh, it was easier for them to project that emotion. Uh, now there, there could be a number of ways to read that. One way is is thinking about how much exposure modern audiences have to modern editing techniques. Um, the the, uh, the other way, I guess, and the authors don't really favor this explanation, but they say another way of looking at it is naivete on the part of the early audiences. There's some kind of projection going on. Because maybe early film audiences were just so bewildered by moving pictures that they almost like hallucinated projections of emotion. Uh, th- the authors don't think this is a very good explanation. Uh, for one thing, because they argue that a lot of the stories that are used to to illustrate the the sort of bewilderment of early film audiences, like the you know the semi mythological things about the audiences running away from the Lumiere train mm-hmm. and stuff, that they right. say that. I mean, there were sort of events of this kind, but they have been mythologized in a way that Overemphasizes how naive early audiences were, and that a lot of these kinds of reactions may have just been audiences playing along. They're at the theater having a good time, and they're playing along with what the suggested reaction
1: was supposed to be. That's true. Once you, especially when you're dealing with a group of people, you know, watching watching anything with a group, even even today with our our modern exposure to cinema, uh, you know, if one person jumps, everybody can jump. That sort of thing. You know, you're more maybe you're more likely to to laugh or scream if you're watching it. With, uh, with other people that sort of thing
0: uh, it makes me think about William Castle and the Tingler trying to get people screaming in the movie theaters yeah
1: yeah uh, which which is you uh, uh, is infectious uh, as I think I mentioned in that Tingler episode I, I got to see the Tingler uh, in a theater and people were totally playing into it like it still worked today so good. Okay, a couple of other possible explanations
0: for the difference between Kuleshov's uh, report and then, and then the failed attempt to replicate those findings. Uh, another one is response bias. So it, th- this seems quite possible to me. Maybe it was originally a sloppy experiment. Maybe Kuleshov primed his test subjects to react the way they did, and they complied. Uh, you know, th- this is why double-blind tests are very useful. If the person administering the test doesn't know what hypothesis is being tested, it's harder for them to behave in a way that would bias uh, that would bias the subject response in favor of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there is, of course, extensive evidence that Kuleshov was already committed to his theory about the power of montage before he allegedly conducted this experiment. Like, he, he already had the result he was looking for in mind.
1: Yeah, like the the neutral face. I, I keep thinking of examples now of neutral face, or very neutral, or or just you know low key acting performances. And one that instantly comes to mind is uh, the sequence in The Godfather where Al Pacino's character is in the restaurant uh, mm-hmm. with um, uh, what is the, the the corrupt police officer and yeah, uh, Sterling like, Hayden. And, yeah. yeah, and the the Turk. Right? Is that the other character? His name uh, Salazzo. Yeah. Salazzo. Um, and of course, what's going to happen is he's going to go to the toilet. He's going to come back with a gun and then he's going to shoot them both. That's the plan. And there's that great sequence where you see Al Pacino's face and he's, he had a very, again, very neutral expression. And I previously just always thought, well, that's just, he's just, he was such a great actor at that point in his career. Like, like you can just see the wheels turning. You can see all the tension going on behind the scenes. But maybe not. Maybe he's just thinking about, uh, you know, what what uh, what he needs to pick up at the grocery store later on in the day. <laughs> and it's just all about everything else going on in the scene and how it's been put together.
0: That could be. There, there are actually a number of shots in The Godfather in particular, where, where uh, they're memorable because of Al Pacino's expressionless face. Like mm-hmm. when... Uh, When Carlo Rizzi confesses at the end to to having killed Sonny and and, uh, Michael just looks at him with the blank expression, but you read a lot into that blank expression. It is a murderous blank expression. Mm -hmm. But there's another way of reading the Al Pacino example here and also of possibly interpreting the original Majukin experiment. I, I really like this explanation. What if Kuleshov's montage was loaded with more conventional emotional content than he claimed? Mm. There could be a million ways this could be true. But for example, what if there was something special about the face uh, of Majukin? What if there was something special about the face that Kulishov used in this supposedly neutral test film that was less neutral than we would be led to believe? Uh, the authors of this 92 paper note, quote, there is a difference between an expressionless face and an ambiguous expression.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they cite an experience from their own experiment. They talk about how the very first tape they created of somebody trying to do a neutral face had to be rejected and replaced with a different actor because it failed to be rated as neutral in the control condition. So that was the control when there were no shots juxtaposed. The control group thought they perceived a range of emotions in the first neutral face they looked at, and then the authors got a different tape, different actor, and it succeeded at being perceived as more
1: neutral in the original control. Uh, this is great to point out, yeah, the difference between a neutral face and an ambiguous face. Uh, because obviously, uh, I mean, this is one of the arguments for why uh, the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci is, uh, is, is such a, uh, an admired piece of, of art, is not because you can easily read what the Mona Lisa is, um, is thinking or feeling, but, but she has this ambiguous countenance.
0: Right. And the difference would be that there, there is a difference between ambiguous and neutral. Neutral is something we look at and we see, I, I don't see any emotion on that face. Ambiguous is you see emotion, but it's not clear what it is. It maybe suggests something that could go in different directions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, uh, but then uh, the authors uh, come back to talking about this more ambiguous, more emotional face that they got the first time they tried to record a tape. They said, When other viewers were shown this face in sequence, many attributed a wide range of emotions to the actor, some consistent with a Kuleshov effect, others not. The sequence with the soup, for example, elicited interpretations of apathy, disgust, contemplation, detachment, dislike, indifference, lack of interest, as well as an occasional attribution of hunger. The ambiguous expression seemed to offer a stronger interpretive cue for the viewer than did the expressionless face. If Kuleshovian montage may not be capable of making an expressionless face emotive, it may very well do with an ambiguous expression, since the objects, like soup, coffin, or child, provide a context for resolving the ambiguity. And I I think this interpretation seems very likely to me, because, again, uh, the allegation is that Mozhukin was a a famed actor— and so there's naturally you can imagine a famed actor's face has something special about it it's kind of brimming with with the the implication of emotion even when they're being relatively subtle or not you know offering a big smile or frown or whatever
1: right right that this may well have been uh... The sort of performer that was highly uh, aware of what their face is doing, that is, you know, that is practiced uh, in front of the mirror, that knows what they're projecting, and therefore, uh, to you know, to a certain extent, might be incapable of a neutral face, at least when uh, when when told to pull some sort of face.
0: Right. So, if there is something to this interpretation, I would say that that the Kuleshov effect, even in the specific case of interpreting neutral faces as, uh, you know, based on the the editing context. It's absolutely tapping into something real, but there might be like thresholds or limits like there is some truth to it, but it can't overcome some truly deeply blandly neutral faces, you know, Mm -hmm. like some ambiguous faces just offer more hooks on which to hang emotional values created by the context.
1: Yeah, yeah. I also wonder you know, what would what would happen if you you, you know you t- took exceptional faces and you threw them in, you know, and not necessarily even exceptionally dashing faces, but like just exceptionally evocative faces, like a, like I don't know, like a Peter Lorre, you know. Uh, if you put Peter Lorre in there, just may, even you know, even though he's going to do a you know a neutral or ambiguous uh, face, uh, you know, what would happen to the experiment? Though, of course, in that case, you'd also have to not know it was Peter Lorre. Because Mm -hmm. then you're going to you're going to start typecasting like, oh, we know what kind of guys this 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 actor plays. Yeah, you'd be uh, suspicious. You'd be reading negative emotional or or suspicious
0: mind content.
1: What is he planning for that soup? He's going to poison that soup, isn't he?
0: Right. Anyway, I think the authors make the point in the end that the the broader implications of the Kuleshov myth, that that individual shots which may be low on meaning or emotion by themselves can become highly charged with meaning by the power of the surrounding editing, this is obviously true and it is largely the basis for the magic of cinema. But the specific claim about supposedly neutral faces appears to be not true at least for some audiences or some faces – but this raises really interesting questions like, what are the properties of the maximally Kulishov ambiguous face? Uh, you know, what, what kind of skills would you want an actor to have to be able to have the, these, you know, subtle ambiguous expressions that can be sort of uh, driven any which way by the surrounding context, by a bowl of soup or by a coffin?
1: I guess you know I I'm, I'm just guessing here but I the bare minimum you need to have some sort of like spark of attention like there seems it, it it's not a not enough perhaps to just rely solely on the editing to imply that there's a connection between this shot and the other but the the person's face appears to be looking with interest at something you know
0: Yeah yeah that's that's a good point I mean I think sometimes with these studies like the face doesn't just look neutral, it looks like it's
1: not seeing anything. Right. Like, if it's just a like mugshot and then, yeah. and then a, pick a plate of spaghetti, like, okay, you showed me a mugshot and you showed me some spaghetti. Maybe something
0: that's crucial is that the, even if they're not showing a very clear emotion, that it looks like they're looking at whatever is being shown. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. So, Prince and Henley is very interesting, but it was by no means the last study on the Kuleshov effect, the last attempt to look at it empirically. And actually, since then, some other studies have kind of come back on the other side, have found a little more support for the original alleged findings. So. One example is the uh, is the study by Dean Mobs et al. from 2006 called The Kuleshov Effect, The Influence of Contextual Framing on Emotional Attributions. This was in Social, Cognitive, and Affective Neuroscience. And the test here was a little bit different, but they did basically look for the same type of effect and did succeed in producing it experimentally. Uh, so in this case, they didn't use just a single... Supposedly neutral face as the stimulus. They used uh, neutral faces and then what they called faces displaying subtly fearful or happy facial expressions. Which, uh, if, if you want to look up the study, you can see the stimuli they use. The, yeah, they're, they're, play, uh, they're faces that are almost neutral, they've just got the barest little hint of a smile or kind of an apprehensive frown. And then they put together a task where they would uh, actually they paired it with neuroimaging in, in this study. So they'd have people doing uh, neuroimaging while they gave them the task to uh, look at this face and then imagine that the person is watching a movie of various kinds. It could be a happy movie scene or a scary movie scene. Uh, and they did find that people were, on average, more likely to interpret uh, neutral or only very subtle expressive faces more in alignment with the emotion that you would expect if they believed the the person was watching either a scary or a happy movie. And so it's worth noting that there is an effect here, but it's not as shockingly powerful and unanimous as like those original tellings of the, the Kuleshov uh, experiment would suggest.
1: Hmm yeah this is interesting this is something we'll continue to look at i i also like that they were looking at scary and happy movie scenes because um it, it also brings to mind episodes we've done in the past on audience reactions to scary movies and how oftentimes like like the the reaction you have to a, a pleasant movie or certainly a a a a funny movie uh mm-hmm. compared to that of a scary movie uh they, they may be more alike than one might think Oh yeah, because a lot of times people laugh when something is scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, laughing, uh, you know, reacting to the way that people around them are reacting. And if you are acting frightened during a frightening movie, it I feel like it's very often a kind of excited frightening. You know, that safe uh-huh. kind of fr- like I am. I am afraid for the characters, but I'm not necessarily afraid for myself.
0: You know, I've actually wondered before if – so a lot of my movie-going entertainment pleasure comes from watching B-horror movies essentially as unintentional comedies and mm-hmm. having a good time laughing laughing along with them. But I wonder if part of that grows out of a kind of defense mechanism learned in childhood, that, that I could protect myself from something scary if I m- sort of forced myself to see it instead as something funny –
1: yeah, I don't know. I, I certainly catch myself going like, ah, more, uh, like that exact um, ah sound, if it is, say, a slightly goofy or goofy monster that is suddenly jumping out, as opposed to um, a more, I don't know, um, effective looking special effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's something about, uh, I, I don't know, it's probably, you know, all this is highly subjective. But for me, at least, uh, you know maybe I'm just leaning into the imagination more in those cases.
0: Uh, Now, just very briefly, I wanted to uh, point out a couple more studies I dug up that looked into the Kuleshov effect more recently than this one. So there was a study in the journal Perception in 2016 by Daniel Barrett et al. called uh, Does the Kuleshov Effect Really Exist? Revisiting a Classic Film Experiment on Facial Expressions and Emotional Context. Uh, So they... They note some of the stuff we already did, doubts about the original experiment, and then the fact that recent attempts to reproduce the effect have had conflicting results. So they tried it out with a group of 36 participants who were presented with 24 film sequences uh, of neutral faces across six different emotional conditions, so trying to reproduce the same effect. And they actually did find a correlation. Uh, it It may not have been huge, but they said, quote, For each emotional condition, the participants tended to choose the appropriate appropriate category more frequently than alternative options, while the answers to the valence and arousal questions also went in the expected direction. So they did find a mild existence of the Kuleshov effect in their research here. And then there was another one by Baranowski and Hate in uh, Perception in 2017 called the Auditory Kulishov Effect, Multisensory Integration in Movie Editing. The study tried to see if there were any Kuleshov-type effects, not for cross-cutting with visual images, but for music. So the question is, does music affect... What emotions people detect on other people's supposedly neutral faces, and according to the authors of this study, uh, their results were yes. They they found that sad music did in fact make people more likely to rate a supposedly neutral face as sad, and and vice versa.
1: Well, that 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 doesn't surprise me at all. I mean music, especially music and film, is, is, is highly manipulative at times. Yes. And, uh, and, and I think we've all seen experiments with this, sort of amateur experiments with this uh, online, where you, you take uh, um, Johnny Cash's uh, cover of Nine Inch Nails Hurt and you play it in the background <laughs> of virtual, virtually any uh, neutral or, movie, or ambiguous yeah. <laughs> footage and you're going to get a sense of like deep personal anguish and, uh, and hurt. I'm just I'm
0: just putting it all together in my mind right now. I'm seeing I'm seeing clips from like Happy Gilmore or something, <laughs> but with with the Johnny Cash. Yeah. To see if I still feel. Oh, and then finally one last one. Uh, there was a paper by Mullenix et al. from uh, 2019 in PLOS One that also looked at the Kuleshov effect, uh, trying to see if it existed for still photographs instead of dynamic film sequences and the authors say yes uh, they, they did the Kuleshov type experiment but just with still photos and they found there was in fact a Kuleshov type effect for
1: just for still images okay also not surprising to me anyway
0: so it looks like more of the recent studies into this have found some kind of effect, though I think sometimes the effects are you know the kinds of things you're more likely to normally see in psychology experiments, kind of modest effects rather than the overwhelming unanimous effect described in the the, the original Majukin experiment.
1: Now I'd like to take um all these points we've been hitting and come back around to something that uh, I briefly discussed, and that was uh, Leonardo da Vinci's famous sixteenth century painting, the Mona Lisa. One of the most intriguing aspects of this painting is the the ultimate ambiguity of the expression, you know the Mona Lisa smile especially uh, it's a it's a it's it's a slight smile, it's a kind of an ambiguous smile. What is she smiling about or beginning to smile about? Um, you know, there, there there have been a number of papers written about this, and I'm certainly not going to do them all justice here. Uh, but I wanted to touch on uh, some findings that I think can potentially uh, contribute to this conversation.
0: Now, wait, did this originally come up in our uh, making a distinction between neutrality and ambiguity? And so yes. so that maybe you're suggesting that the Mona Lisa's face might be one of those famous faces that is ambiguous but not neutral.
1: Right, it doesn't look like a death mask, but also you know she's not she's not scowling, she doesn't look like Vigo the copathian, she's not smiling <laughs> ear to ear it's a very uh, interesting expression uh, to say the least um, that people have been discussing and studying for, for, for decades and de- I mean for, for, for ages. Uh, so I'm not going to cover all the studies, but there, there've been, there've been plenty. Uh, but I was looking at one, uh, th- this was a, a theory that was put forth by professor Margaret Livingston of Harvard university. Um, the, the, uh, she argues that um, a, a lot of um, what fascinates us about this painting is because the smile appears differently depending on where you 're standing in position to the painting, hmm. so if you look at it with your uh, foveal or direct vision, uh, then arguably there 's not really a smile going on there, but if you view it from your uh, with your peripheral vision out of the corner of your eye, then it seems like there 's a pronounced smile now this doesn 't this this uh, little tidbit doesn 't particularly. Uh, have a lot to reveal um, about the broader topic we're discussing here, but I found it interesting just talking. About, and, and indeed, it's one that you can you can pull up an image of the Mona Lisa uh, on your computer, or your phone, or uh, if you have a you know, copy hanging in your 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 house, you can do it this way as well. And uh, you, you'll find I think that uh, you do get this effect if you kind of look at it out of the corner of your eyes. It seems like there's a pronounced smile. Look at her directly, and uh, it's it's not there.
0: I see exactly what you mean. Another interesting thing is that my mental image of the Mona Lisa is smiling more than the actual image seems to be when I look at it. Yeah. Uh, something about the, the lower resolution copy in my brain appears to have accentuated the smile. And maybe somehow that's picking up on uh, the kind of subtle shading of the contours of her cheeks, which looks like it they could be continuing the lines of her mouth, but it's not her mouth.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh yeah, I, I think that that's this very much it. And of course you can get into deeper discussions of, you know, to what extent um you know this is intended and you know, what Leonardo da Vinci's trying to do uh with this. Um because another another aspect of the smile that's frequently brought up is that it's um uh it's it's not a symmetrical smile. Mm. Um and this is often fr- Cited as uh, is one of the key interesting aspects of the Mona Lisa's uh, smile of Mona Lisa's face in general Um, Now the emotional impact of her expression has been much debated over the years and is like like a lot of what we discussed uh, uh, In part one and in this episode, it's one of those areas where you can you can science it all day But you're still working with subjective art rather than objective principles but there are some papers that I think have some revealing information uh, based generally on, you know, smallish studies uh, looking at, asking people to look at the, the painting or look at portions of the painting. Sometimes they've been manipulated in a key way and see what people have to say about it. And this is where we're getting, uh, you know, we're getting into um, something that's more in line uh, with the broader topic here. When you look at the, the Mona Lisa, what kind of emotional, um, uh, understanding is passing between uh, the painting and yourself.
0: Does it depend on what painting is across the room from her on the other wall? <laughs> so, like, what you're perceiving her to be looking
1: at? <laughs> uh, they they didn't get into that uh, uh, as much, but I couldn't help but think of it. I kept thinking of her looking at soup and so forth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, one paper I was looking at was the tw- 2019 paper from uh, Marsili et al. published in Cortex, the journal Cortex. In which the researchers asked 42 individuals to rate which of the six basic emotions as well as a neutral expression of of emotion was related in chimerical images uh, constructed from the photo. So chimerical images in this sense are formed from opposing halves of a pair uh of same or different faces usually in uh, like studies and courtroom settings but in this case it would be like you know uh my understanding here is like mirroring different parts of the face dealing with the uh uh, with the asymmetry you know like what if you had uh, side a is the uh, and you just cloned it onto side b that sort of thing now the results in this case indicated that happiness is expressed only on the left side of mona lisa's face not on the right uh and uh, this actually leans into the interpretation that the Mona Lisa smile is not a legitimate smile at all, but a fake smile. Uh, mm. Something that is either, you know, a noteworthy subject of, of the art in and of itself or has a more specific, even cryptic purpose in Da Vinci's art here. Uh, but, uh, and, and I think potentially makes it, you know, more interesting piece. It's not a, just a painting of a woman smiling. It's a painting of a woman pretending to smile uh, yeah. faintly. Uh, This is interesting
0: because I know that's something I've read, and I don't know how legitimate this is, but I've I've at least read um, facial expression ambiguity as one of the features people use to detect fakery of emotions in others. So when people look at somebody else and they see that their smile is asymmetrical, they're more likely to think they're faking it.
1: Right, right. and uh, this is a topic we've we've covered on the show before, because you get into that whole topic of um, of micro expressions and reading micro expressions, and uh, yeah, the uh, the idea that uh, that a fake smile looks one way, uh, but there's a more profound, pronounced um, um, uh, muscle definition to a legitimate smile. And so that's, I mean, that's on it on its own is something we might take into account when considering uh, ambiguous, like semi happy, semi smiling, ambiguous. Uh, um, images, ambiguous faces used in one of these experiments. Now, uh, another study I looked at here was one from 2017 by Liacci et al, published in Scientific Reports. Uh, The researchers here manipulated, this one's actually kind of funny, I think, manipulated Mona Lisa's mouth curvature uh, and studied how a range of happier and sadder uh, face-variance influence perceptions of her emotions. So um, you, the, the actual paper gets into a lot of it, Like, they bust out some equations in math on this. But basically, they're just doing what you're imagining now, like making the smile more pronounced or making it less pronounced. And um, they were able to manipulate perception along a sadness-happiness um, uh, spectrum, uh, but contended ultimately that their data indicates that the natural Mona Lisa, at any rate, is always happy. Uh, but I found this more telling. quote, Observers recognize positive facial expressions faster than negative expressions. Uh, this is not a finding, but just a, a, a reality that they were uh, uh, discussing in in the uh, the paper. So, in other words, faces spiraling down through neutrality, ambiguity, and into other emotional states require more contemplation. Uh, and and I'm making assumptions here, but uh, but more nuance. So hmm. like the like the, the face that's smiling ear to ear or is in a you know the, the vigo the Copathian scowl we don 't have to think long and hard about that like what kind of emotion is, is this person having about the soup? Uh, we know that they they're either ecstatic over the soup or they just hate the soup or something involved with the soup we don't uh-huh. have to uh, to think about it much, but when you have that that uh, that ambiguous smile or even a slight uh, frown you know that that 's when that's when that really makes you think, like, what is this person thinking? My my theory of mind has to maybe engage more to try and figure it out. And then ultimately, we have to re- remember, I mean, one of the key things about people's faces is, is that the face itself is a communication array. So, like, we're trying to get information potentially about that soup, right? Like, mm-hmm. like th- this individual might know if that soup is good. I want to know, like, what the inside track is on the soup um, or on other human beings, uh, before I myself decide how I feel about it. I know this is sort of
0: beside your main point, but it also makes me think about the strange biological contingency that one of the main features of that communication array is also the hole that soup goes in. <laughs> it's true. You ever think about how weird that is? You know, it didn't have to be that way, but we just, we, we cram in, uh, we cram in nutrition and speak through the same
1: orifice. It's weird. It's true. It's weird. But, you know, it, it's always a reminder that we shouldn't try and do both at the same time. Right? <laughs> but to bring it back to Kuleshov, I do think this drives home a little bit the susceptibility uh, of ambiguous faces. You know, that we can, um, if, if the face is ambiguous, we have to think more about it. We have to think more about the, the context. But, you know, what is the relationship between um, uh, shot A and shot B?
0: Right. I mean, that would go along with what uh, Mobs et al. said in their background again, which is that, you know, the the broad finding of behavioral research is that people rely most on context to interpret the faces of others when the clarity of the facial expression is low. So that could be ambiguity or other things, maybe or maybe just like it's hard to see. And when the clarity of the context is high. So when there's information in the context and less information in the face, you reach for the context. (laughs)
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Well, anyway, I guess this all brings us back to uh, one of the questions posed by the Prince and Hensley paper, uh, which is, you know, I wonder if certain actors are just more likely to um, more likely to give rise to this effect than others are. And that, uh, again, drawing on that observation that there's actually a difference between a neutral face and an ambiguous face. I was trying to think of examples of actors uh, whose what you might call blank or neutral faces might tend more toward expressive ambiguity rather than true neutrality. So even when their face is supposedly at rest, you could look at it and And it would seem valid to interpret a wide range of intense emotions to them. The best example I could think of, and I didn't pick him just because I love him as an actor, though I do. The best example I could think of was Toshiro Mifune, who uh, you might know from uh, Akira Kurosawa movies. You know, he's the star of Yojimbo and, and movies like that. I would say he is somebody who, even when he's doing something very stoic with his face, even when his face appears to be at rest... You could easily imagine that it is expressing a, a range of diametrically opposing emotions. And Rob, I, I pasted it in a picture for you to look at here. That's just a, a portrait of him. Uh, I don't think this is even from a film. I think this might just be like a studio portrait still, uh, because this is one where I've seen you know, like that he's done autographs on and stuff. To my eye, in this portrait, he could be happy. He could be sad. He could be affectionate. He could be hungry. He could be angry all seem totally plausible with the expression on his face. And I guess this seems to correspond with the fact that I'd say he's an actor known simultaneously for having a highly emotionally expressive face and for often playing kind of stoic characters.
1: Yeah, yeah. You think about the, especially some of the, the samurai type characters that he played, it tends to be an intense stoicism to those characters. Though at the same time, I mean, you think of his, uh, the, the Macbeth character uh, or the, right. uh, the equivalent of Macbeth pretty that he wild. plays in Throne of Blood. Uh, you know, certainly he's, you know, there's plenty of wide-eyed crazy shots in that film, especially towards the end. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of the characters he plays uh, have, have a, a certain sternness, a certain uh, a stoic quality uh, that, that has, ultimately has an intense ambiguity to it.
0: And it makes me think about a difference that, uh, you know, sometimes you read psychological studies that are measuring emotions in some context, and they measure emotions in terms of both valence and intensity, where valence means what the emotion is, so it could be like positive emotion or negative emotion, and intensity is how strongly it is felt. Uh, Thinking about this makes me wonder if maybe there are some people whose emotional expression naturally tends to be high in intensity even when the valence is unknown or unclear, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So I wonder if that's especially the kind of person that you use a picture of that kind of actor trying to do a neutral face, but then you do a Kuleshov type experiment and people would be like, yes, you know, you show them looking at the coffin, they're very sad. You show them looking at the soup, they are ravenous. Whereas there are other actors who, whose faces just more successfully convey a blank neutrality where people see it and they say, I, I don't think this person's feeling anything.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And to try and sort of prove it out for our own purposes, you posted this picture of uh, a Mufune in in our notes, and I posted a picture of Soup next to him. Uh-huh. And indeed, if I look at the two and I sort of go back and forth, if, yeah, I can re I can lean into different interpretations. Like, is he he is angry that the soup has been served. Maybe it was served too early or it's, you know, it's clearly cold or he just had the soup yesterday and, and therefore he is uh, he is irate. But he also could be like, yes, now it is time to to really get into this soup. It is soup awesome. time. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or various other
0: interpretations. You know, weirdly, some of the other actors I know who fit into this mold are not just film actors. I mean, a lot of them are film actors, but especially people who have done like modeling, like fashion modeling or art mm-hmm. modeling, like Grace Jones comes to mind as somebody mm-hmm. who could have, have a facial expression that is ambiguous in valence, but high in intensity.
1: No, yeah, I, I definitely, yeah, I, I definitely can see that with Grace Jones. I was thinking, I was trying to think of good examples of this. And uh like my mind turned to some actors who certainly, you know, have kind of like a smoldering, Uh, stare or have, you know, good at the stoic type characters, or especially Mm -hmm. the sort of Joe Cool characters, you know, as I think of them (laughs) where, you know, it's like playing some cool, cool dude who's like a detective or something. And he's, you know, he's acting pretty much uh, unfazed by everything around him. But I I think the better example I I ended up uh, turning to is Harry Dean Stanton, who often played very you know very sort of emotionally muted characters I would say though not Joe cool characters you know not not a right. character that's so far above it all that uh, he feels completely at ease. Oh I think Harry Dean's potentially another great example yeah. Yeah. And an- another like actually kind of like a suite of answers that came to mind uh, were from the uh the the alien film franchise <laughs> the various actors that you had playing androids. Um, huh. specifically uh, thinking of um, uh, Ian Holm, um, Lance Hendrickson, and Michael Fassbender. Uh, huh. All three very talented actors, um, but, um, but in all cases, they're supposed to be playing the, this artificial human type of being that has no emotions, but, but has an intent. And, and mm-hmm. depending on which film you're landing on and which particular incarnation of, of the android, that intent may be um, uh, benevolent or or may, might lean more neutral or might be malicious. Um, and, That's uh, interesting.
0: Yeah. The, yeah. I don't know if I'd go there with Ian Holm, actually, because Ian Holm seems unusually capable of projecting absolute blank neutrality where you don't get that – that ambiguity that spins off in all the directions. Like I think he would be, he would be great to have people like absolutely fail to reproduce the Kuleshov results, have (laughs) him doing blank face, but other ones you're saying, I I agree.
1: Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. Uh, Like I was just thinking back on those films and even though these are the characters that are not supposed to have emotional states, in some cases, I feel like I have a better handle on their emotional states versus other human characters in those pictures.
0: Hmm. Yeah,
1: but I have to admit, I did not paste all of their photos into our document and put them opposite soup, so I haven't tested it myself.
0: Oh, you did put Fassbender next to soup, though, and
1: I got to say, he looks hungry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he looks he he does look like he is uh, he is about to dine on some soup.
0: Can't you just imagine a, a scene of him sensually teaching his twin how to peel a butternut squash?
1: <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Feeding each other soup with wooden spoons. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, all of this is is
0: just to say. And, and to be fair, maybe some studies uh, have done this, and, and I didn't realize it. But it, it seems like maybe one good move to try to avoid the uh, the 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 interactor effects of the of the stimulus you use in Kulishov type experiments is to just like get a whole lot of pictures of neutral faces. And then serve them up at random, and so you can get kind of the, the neutral face photo averaged out over a big population instead of having it fluctuate based on like how truly neutral your supposedly neutral face looks.
1: Mm. Well, I'd be delighted to hear from uh, listeners out there what their thoughts are. and there are specific examples uh, from cinema and from um, the, you know the, uh, the faces of various actors.
0: You know, I wanted to come back to something though which which I thought is kind of interesting about this. Uh it, even if you only accept that the Kuleshov effect is rather modest or only applies sometimes, it it is still pretty interesting that it indicates how flexible the human brain is at constructing artificial scenarios and still applying uh like human logic to them. That like, you know, you're not observing a real scenario in life where you're trying to guess if somebody is hungry, you're looking at a photo or you're looking at an image on a on a screen and then it's being intercut with a you know a coffin that they might be sad at or a, just a picture of soup or something and we we start applying the same logic we apply to real life to these obviously artificial stimuli.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think it's a great reminder of just how Film works, and, and and other mediums of art, but especially film. Uh, how you know they they still require a viewer, and if there's not a viewer, uh, if there's if there's not a moviegoer, there's no film experience, since therefore there's no film, and so yeah. there's no matter how polished the thing on the screen is, there's something that takes place not only between the film and the viewer, but inside the viewer's mind. That's that's critical.
0: And that a lot of times we don't notice how many gaps we're filling in as film viewers. Like, yeah, you don't realize how much work you're doing. And it's work that is apparently pretty easy to do. It's just something we we tend to do pretty much automatically while we're watching movies is – Fill in those gaps of logic, make connections between one image and another, make assumptions about what's going on in an actor's head when they're portrayed on screen, based on the context or the music or you know what was shown just before or after. But it, it, it's one of those things where it gets pretty weird when you start to notice all of those like assumptions you're having to make and mental work you're having to do for a movie to make sense, which in reality is a flickering succession of of moving images. Which uh, you know sometimes if you were to be very literal about them are are totally unconnected, like you see like a staircase that's from one state and then a house that's from another, and then somebody's coming in through a front door and you just connect it all it was, this is all in the same place. Persons just moving through their their daily routine,
1: yeah I mean, we often think of of viewing films and watching TV programs as being kind of a shut your brain off kind of a situation at least with with certain types of uh, of film and TV. And, uh, you know, we think that, okay, if it's a, if it's a highly crafted product, we're not going to have to, in mainstream product, we're not going to have to do much thinking. It's going to hold our hand the whole way. But, uh, but yeah, even, even in the case of your sort of, um, you know, by the numbers summer blockbuster, uh, you know, very much repeating a plot you've seen before with the sort of characters you've seen before, your brain is still uh, filling in these little gaps, like you say. But on the same hand, I think one uh, one thing we can drive home based on what we've been discussing here is that that the opposite, uh, in a way, is true. Is that if you're dealing with a film that, say, is uh, you know for, uh, of a of a genre you're not that familiar with, or a time period of, of filmmaking you're not that familiar with, um, perhaps it's a you know more more of an art film or it's a, you know foreign language, etc. A lot of it is still going to come down to. Uh, Human or humanoid entities interacting with things in each other, and then our brain is going to make presumptions about their mental state and their emotional state.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you infer drama even when the thing you're looking at is almost actively resisting it. And, and that, that goes beyond movies, in fact. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, what is drama? Drama is somebody wanting something or trying to get something and then coming up against resistance in some way. Yeah. Uh, they, people infer those kinds of dramas on like balls rolling around on a table. There are literally studies of that. You know, people will say like uh, the ball uh, wanted to go down in this hole, but it, you know, it couldn't get there because something was preventing it.
1: All right, we're going to go ahead and close it out there, but we would love to hear from everybody if you have particular thoughts on the Kaluchov effect, um, various examples and studies we've discussed in these episodes, uh, some of the uh, various examples from, uh, from film and, and acting that we have uh, alluded to. Perhaps you have some better examples uh, that you would like to uh, bring to our attention. Uh, just write in and let us know. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, check it out in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. You'll find that wherever you get your podcasts. We have core episodes on Tuesday and Thursday. We have uh listener mail on Monday, short form artifact episode on Wednesday. And on Friday, we do weird house cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious matters and just discuss a weird film. Um, if you want a quick way to get to our podcast, you can just go to stuff to blow that should still redirect you over to the iHeart listing for our page.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.